recognition of the fact that today is Pentecost Sunday, uh, traditionally celebrated on the seventh Sunday after Easter as a reminder of the Holy Spirit's outpouring 50 days after Jesus' resurrection while the apostles were in Jerusalem celebrating the Jewish Feast of Weeks or the Day of First Fruits which occurred 50 days after Passover for the Jews. I want to begin with a quotation by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says, Common, all too common, is the sin of forgetting the Holy Spirit. This is folly and ingratitude. As God, he is good essentially. He is good benevolently, tenderly bearing with our waywardness, striving with our rebellious wills, quickening us from our death in sin and training us. He is good operatively. All his works are good in the most eminent degree. He suggests good thoughts, prompts good actions, reveals good truths, applies good promises, assists in good attainments, and leads to good results. There is no spiritual good in all the world of which he is not the author and sustainer. They who yield to his influence become good. They who obey his impulses do good. They who live under his power receive good. And then Spurgeon concludes by saying these timeless and profound words. Make note of them. The church will never prosper until it more reverently believes in the Holy Ghost. In light of those words, I want to pose a very personal and extremely serious question. Do you and I reverently believe in the Holy Spirit? Reverently believe. Are you willing to invite the Holy Spirit to deeply examine your soul? Because that's what it's going to take to live reverently in belief of the Holy Spirit. We can't always trust our own examination of ourselves, can we? As someone said, trying to see the truth about myself is like trying to see the inside of my own eyeballs. You can't do it. David's honest petition in Psalms 19 verse 12 penetrates through our nearsightedness. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart cleanse me from these hidden faults, he says. As believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not left on our own in this area. The Spirit is continually at work inside of us to detect, to forgive, and to cleanse us from all of these hidden faults. And all we have to do is to listen and respond appropriately. In his book, The Me I Want to Be, author John Ortberg describes a scene which maybe we're all too familiar with, at least spiritually. He says, once in the middle of the night, Nancy, and, that's his wife, Nancy and I were lying in bed and there was this tremendously loud beeping sound. Uh, Nancy gave me an elbow to the ribs and she said, what is that? What's that sound? I knew that if I acknowledged hearing the sound, it would be my job to go check it out. So I said, what sound? 
But I had to say it very loudly so that she could hear me over the tremendously loud beeping. <laughs> and she said, that tremendously loud beeping sound, that sound. And uh, he said, okay, that sound. Well, let me go find out. So I went into the hallway, found the problem, and took care of it. And when I got back to bed, Nancy asked, what was it? And I told her it was the smoke detector. And she said, what made it stop? And I told her I took the battery out. <laughs> you can't do that, she said. There could be a fire in the house somewhere. Nancy, I explained patiently, we're upstairs. There's no smoke. We can't smell anything. There's no heat coming from any place. I checked. Do you smell any smoke? I don't smell any smoke. It was clearly a battery problem. Trust me, I took care of it. Went back to sleep. The next morning, I had an early breakfast meeting, so while everyone else in the family was still sleeping, I went downstairs to leave the house. There were some odd malfunctions. The hall lights downstairs didn't work. The garage door wouldn't open automatically. That was strange, but I didn't think much more about it. Well, 40 minutes into my breakfast appointment, the server asked me if I was John Ortberg. Your wife called, she said. She asked you to come home. She said, the house is on fire. <laughs> I went home. Fire trucks were parked all over the cul-de-sac. I watched outside of our White House turning brown, great clouds of smoke escaping into the neighborhood. It turns out that a few delinquent birds built their nest inside the chimney casing. It eventually started smoldering and set off that loud beeping sound. Because we didn't do anything, and I say we, when I say we, it's my way of saying that mistakes were made, but not by me. <laughs> a fire started behind the wall and did unbelievable damage, all from a little bird's nest, he says. A stupid little bird's nest. What kind of an idiot would take the batteries out of a smoke detector so he could sleep better during a fire? That would be me, he said. Then he says this. He said, the smoke detector wasn't my enemy. The fire was my enemy. The smoke detector was just trying to help me. Friends, we have a spiritual smoke detector installed in the middle of our souls. And it's his business to beep. Our business is to listen to the beep and to respond to it. It's time that we did. So I want to start my main outline of today's message in celebration of Pentecost Sunday, the coming of the Holy Spirit, with a very important premise based on God's promise about that spirit. Number one is that his faithfulness endures, so don't fear. Don't fear it. In John 14... Verses 15 to 18, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These are Jesus' words. 
What does that tell me? It says we're secure in his presence, in the Spirit's presence. We're secure in that. You believe that? If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, baptized into his body by his Spirit, you will never, ever, I repeat, never be abandoned by him. Ever. Jesus said, he will be with you forever in John 14, 16. How long is forever? It's forever. The presence of the Spirit today is universal and permanent among true believers. Through the baptism of the Spirit, we are placed in union with Christ and his church once for all time at the moment of salvation. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 6, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 5. We are blood-bought, we are spirit-sealed, we are glory-bound, guaranteed. We're secure in his presence and we're sealed with his promise. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard of the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We can be confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, it says in Philippians 1.6. Nothing can separate us from his love and protection. No one is going to or is able to snatch us out of God's hand, Jesus said in John 10, 27. His faithfulness still endures, so do not fear. He will always protect us. The Holy Spirit is our hope, our seal, our anchor, our smoke detector. That's not in the Bible, but that's my version of it. But along with the glorious benefits of that promise comes the flip side of the coin. He will never stop beeping when he detects danger. Okay? He won't. The batteries can never be taken out if you're a true believer. Not really. We cannot only attempt to block our ears and ignore the sound of the beeping. I have a life. You have a life. I have a soul. You have a soul. Hear any beeping sounds in there lately? Because there's another point about the Holy Spirit that we need to address, and that is this. His frustration still builds, so don't be foolish. The fact that he is faithful doesn't mean that we can fool around with his grace and cheapen it by living any old way we please, right? We can sin against the Holy Spirit, can't we? And can we can do it in a number of different ways according to the scriptures. And when we do, you know what starts happening? This starts happening. It's not going away. Beeping can sound like that. And this is what it looks like practically. A parent neglects his children. They complain, misbehave, or increase the level of conflict around the house, and the parent has a nagging sense of failure. But instead of looking closely at his parenting, 
instead of talking directly about it with his children, he buries himself more fully in work, hobbies, or television. Or a woman feels a twinge of pain when she sees a documentary about famine in Africa. She vaguely wonders about how little money that she gives, but she doesn't like the discomfort, so she distracts herself by going shopping. An angry man blows up at those closest to him. His beeping sound is his loneliness. And he takes the batteries out of the smoke detector by drinking a little more, by convincing himself his relatives are all difficult people. And on and on it goes. You can make your own application. And you know what? The spirit is grieved. And that's something that the scripture teaches us in Ephesians 4.30, that he can be grieved, can't he? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Probably know this verse. Says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a command. And that word grieve is a very strong word in the original language. Surrounding it are weighty emotions. Emotions like pain and hurt, sorrow, and distress. J.B. Phillips has translated this verse like this. Never wound the Holy Spirit. He is, remember, the seal upon you of your eventual full redemption. Now, to grieve the Holy Spirit is to wound the Holy Spirit personally and deeply. Literally, it's to break his heart. How do we grieve or wound the Holy Spirit? Well, whatever violates God's will grieves the Holy Spirit. Whatever violates that will. This week, I want to encourage you, look at the context of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. In that context, you'll see all kinds of things that can grieve the Spirit. Things like unwholesome talk, in verse 29. Or an unholy attitude in verses 31 to 32. Or unchristian behavior in verse 17. We bring him sorrow when we inwardly rationalize. I know that I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm forgiven, so it's okay. It's under the blood. I can do it anyway. You know what that does? That cuts the Holy Spirit's heart open. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And this is what we get. Very annoying, isn't it? But that tells you you're one of His. If that keeps going on in your life and you continually ignore it, you're not going to be going down a good road. See, guilt is not my enemy. It's not your enemy. Sin, which blocks off life, is the enemy. Amen? The Spirit will often bring a sense of conviction, and when He does, the best response is not to suppress that guilt, but to get out of bed, take a look around the house, and put the fire out before it does more damage. The danger is that if you don't repent of that sin and quickly get it back on track, you could end up not only grieving the Spirit, but you might begin to start resisting the Holy Spirit. 
to actively kick against him. So don't get used to this beeping. You're not going to ever get used to it, no matter how many times I push the button, are you? The Holy Spirit can be resisted in Acts chapter 7. And um, verse 51, we see that. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, the resisting part is something that Stephen said when he was preaching to the Jews and they were about to stone him. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, we read the words, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. So the prophets in the Old Testament and the prophets in the New Testament come on the scene and they talk about Jesus and they talk about God's will and they tell people what they should do. And the Jews resisted that Holy Spirit's witness and put to death the prophets. And resisting the Spirit is one more step away from his outstretched hand toward us. God is constantly working in our lives through the Spirit to bring us into this perfect relationship with him. He reaches out through us through things like people and events and circumstances, consistently revealing himself to us so that we might respond positively to him. Listen, don't stop responding to the Spirit's beeping. Once you do, once you stop responding, well, we don't even want to go there, do we? Just read the history, for example, of Robert Robertson, who wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount. And the lines, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. There's a history behind those words. And it's pretty powerful. Don't resist him. And then in Acts chapter 5, you know the story about Ananias and Sapphira who lied. They sold property, only gave a portion of it to Peter. And it wasn't the fact that they only gave a portion of it to Peter that was the problem. The problem was that they lied about how much money they sold the property for and how much they were going to give to the church. Ananias and Sapphira learned the hard way that you cannot deceive or you cannot hide anything from God who sees it all. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then the Spirit can be quenched, according to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Spiritual things become less and less important to a person who is continually grieving and resisting the Spirit, and instead of fanning the flame of the Spirit within them or around them, they pour water on him. You ever seen that happen to somebody? It's not a good sight. Individuals do it. Whole churches can engage in it. And when ministry that the Spirit is directing us to is stifled, the spirit is quenched. 
The NIV translates this in the picturesque form when it says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. That's how that's translated in the NIV. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. That's it in a nutshell. Quenching the Spirit is like pouring a bucket of cold water on a fire that's burning and providing benefit to all around it. Whether it's burning in you or burning around uh, in others around you, don't put it out. Now, this is where the metaphor shifts, right? Of the smoke alarm versus the fire. It changes a little bit here. In this case, the alarm is alerting us to do something good, helpful, beneficial, not detrimental. Don't put the fire of the Holy Spirit out. That means don't try and stop what the Spirit is doing in your life or the church's life. Look at Paul's context. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. See, if these things aren't being followed, the fire of the Spirit gets doused. That doesn't mean that we should allow everything that is done in the name of the Spirit to go on. We must test and examine everything carefully according to scriptures here holding on to what is good and rejecting what is not good. But I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and is operating in many churches and in many different people, don't you? Amen? All of which may approach ministry from a very unique angle. That's God's doing. And as I learned years ago, the one great claim of Christianity is that it can produce people who dare to be different, right? I love that statement in The Chosen, Jesus says, get used to different. Get used to different. If this flame of diversity is snuffed out, what kind of exciting message do we have for the world? We also ought to note, as J.I. Packer points out, that while one may effectively put out a fire by dousing it, one cannot make it burn again simply by stopping pouring water. Doesn't work that way, does it? It has to be lighted afresh. Similarly, when the spirit has been quenched, it is beyond our power to undo the damage we've done. We can only cry out to God in humble penitence, asking that he will revive his work in us. Don't quench the spirit, Paul says. If the spirit is grieved and resisted to the point of quenching him and you persist in that practice, you may find, as the Jews did in the Old Testament and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, that you are not a child of God at all. Now remember, I said the Holy Spirit could never be, would never abandon us if we're truly believers. But you could find out that you're not a child of God. And in fact, maybe nearing the perilous point of no return. In Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 10, words will be on the screen. 
We read these words, in all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy and he fought against them. Those are harsh words. Those are scary words. Notice the pattern. They rebelled. He grieved. He turned against them. He fought against them. That's pretty scary. And the New Testament asks the question that if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the implied answer? No one. It's a great promise of security for the believer, for the true believer. But the opposite is true as well. If God is against us, who can be for us? What's the implied answer? No one. No one at all, because no one's greater than God. Listen to these verses found in the Old Testament again in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. See now that I, I am he, God says, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. That's a sovereign God speaking. In Amos, the prophet Amos, in chapter 9, we read these words, which are pretty scary. God finally says to the nation, and I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. We don't ever want to be in that place. If you're a true believer, I don't know if you can ever get to that place, but if you're only a professing believer who has no Holy Spirit in you, you could get to this place. Judgment happens at the center of idolatry. Here is the point at which I believe a person or church or a people is exposed as apostate. The point where total rejection of the Holy Spirit's truth about Christ has been reached. These people, they don't lose their salvation. They simply never possessed it. Or should I say, it never really possessed them. And now they have reached a state of what someone has called determined unbelief state in which the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is rejected out of hand. And the writer of Hebrews says that at that point, the Spirit, not just grieved, not just quenched, not just lied to, but he's insulted. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26 The writer of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's the understatement of the year, right? Literally, 
What the writer of Hebrews is talking about is people who treat with utter contempt and outrage the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the contemptuous sin of determined and definitive unbelief. People who get to this point have grieved, resisted, quenched the spirit to the point where they begin to reject every and any opportunity that they've been given to come to Christ. There is nothing left for them, according to this text, but judgment. It's kind of, it's similar to the sin that Jesus referred to as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which has often been referred to as the unpardonable sin, which is mentioned by Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 22, uh, beginning in verse 22, says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now that particular sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in context here, seems to be the unique sin of being a first-hand witness to the miraculous work of Christ and calling it satanic. It was tantamount to saying that Jesus was demon-possessed and performed miracles by Satan himself. That is why some believe that this sin could only be committed when Jesus walked the earth. And I'm one of those people. I don't believe you can commit that sin now the way it's said there. Having said that, though, I do believe there is a sin that leads to ultimate eternal death in the scriptures that would be unpardonable today. That is the sin of totally refusing and continually rejecting the Spirit's offer and direction toward salvation, the only means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. If you die in that state, there is no forgiveness for that. There is a point on the Niagara River as you approach the falls that is considered the point of no return. Similarly, there is a point in which a person becomes so hardened to the promptings of the Spirit that he has totally turned his back on God's revelation and God turns his back on them and allows their unbelief to take its own course. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next segment on Romans 1. That, that whole thing makes a point that it's simply this, that there comes a point in time when God says no more. When God turns out the lights. When God turns his back on people who continually reject them and give them over to their own devices. 
when for all intents and purposes further opportunity for salvation is lost to those who continue to reject the truth. Remember now, this point doesn't come overnight, okay? Doesn't come overnight. This is the result of a gradual process of going deeper and deeper into sin one step at a time. Again, that's what Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 is really pointing out. And those who truly follow Christ would not commit this sin. But don't confuse these sins against the Holy Spirit with personal sins we are in fact struggling to overcome as believers. Okay? The struggle that we have as believers with sin, the struggle itself testifies to the fact that we have the Spirit living within us. Amen? The struggle in that case is not necessarily with the Spirit, but with sin itself. Just read Romans 7. Paul struggled with that. It's the refusal to let the Spirit have his way that will destroy us. Now, there may be another way to sin against the Spirit implied by the Scriptures as well. We can sin against the Holy Spirit by defiling and destroying the temple of God. Let me explain that. You know what the temple of God is? There are two things in 1 Corinthians that identify what the temple of God is. In chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, talks about us individually. Our physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? But in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul talks about the church body corporately as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapters 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, meaning the whole body? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You see, as believers, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually and corporately. We dare not fool around with his grace in that regard. If there's something in your life that's grieving him right now, my encouragement to you, the the Spirit's encouragement to you, the Scripture's encouragement to you is to deal with it. Don't let it spiral out of control. And if you're not a believer, that same encouragement holds true, even more so. Don't get to that point where God says to you, have it your way. Because you don't want it your way. Before you reach the point of no return, listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The writer says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Spirit's frustration still builds, so don't be foolish. However, on a more positive note, and we need that, right? More positive note now. The Spirit's freedom still rings, so don't forget it. Don't forget it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote these words. He said, the demand for absolute liberty brings men to the depths of slavery. It's true, isn't it? We see that all around us in the culture. The demand for absolute liberty brings men to the depths of slavery. Our country is very perilously close to that place. 
Ben Franklin once said that only a virtuous people is capable of true freedom. And that's true too, isn't it? An incredible contrast is unfolding in front of our eyes. On one hand, ours is a day which screams for liberation to be free. Is that right? You hear it all the time. People cry for freedom from societal rules, civil regulations, personal restrictions, and moral restraints. They want to be free to do their own thing. On the other hand, it is also a day which is immersed in addiction to drugs, alcohol, sex, self, violence, pleasure, and passions. So while we clamor for freedom on one side, we descend into bondage on the other. In our attempts to sidestep the restrictions of righteousness, mankind has slipped into slavery to sin. Bonhoeffer and Franklin were both exactly right. The fact of the matter is there's only one prescription for freedom, and Jesus gave it, didn't he? In John 8, in verse 36, if therefore the Son shall make you free, say it with me, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is the way to absolute freedom, amen? And he has given us his spirit to enable us to live in that freedom, hasn't he? Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Amen? So we're freed from the law of sin, Paul says. What does that mean? That we have license to do whatever we want? We don't have any laws anymore? Absolutely not. Scripture speaks very clearly to this in Romans 6, right? So, Paul says, do you think we should continue sinning so that God will give us even more grace? Absolutely not. We died to our old sinful selves, so how can we continue to live in sin anymore? Here's a good practical example that you can run this through, a little grid, okay? Imagine an alcoholic going to an AA meeting and hearing these words. We're so glad you're here. We want you to know that you are loved and that you're forgiven through nothing you have done. Of course, don't expect to change. Don't expect to stop drinking. We don't like it when people suggest sobriety is possible. We believe it breeds arrogance and self-sufficiency when people think in terms of actually not drinking. We have a little bumper sticker. Goes like this. 12-steppers are not sober, just forgiven. That's a little convicting, isn't it? Romans chapter 6, in verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies anymore, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be master over you because you are not under law, but you're under grace. We're free from the law of sin if you're a believer. You don't have to obey that old man anymore. We're free from the law of works, it says in Galatians chapter 5. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In Jesus, believers have been liberated from the external ceremonies and the rituals of the Old Testament law because Christ fulfilled them. It's for freedom that Christ sets us free. Moreover, we don't need any more legalistic codes of conduct that we can construct, which often creep into the church. The motivation to obey Christ, where does that come from? Somebody tell me. Where does that motivation to obey Christ come from? The Spirit, right? It doesn't come from external man-made laws and rules. We're free to live and fulfill the law of love then. That's Galatians 5, verses 13 to 16. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You know what happens when we start to do these things that Paul is talking about? Yeah, we get this little thing going on inside of us. So you know what we do? We start talking louder so we don't have to listen to it anymore. That's not what God wants. No. We're free to fulfill the law of love. An old saint said it this way, and you've heard it before so many times. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then do as you please. What do you think of that? Does that work? Does it work? Yes, it does. Sorry to disappoint you. But if you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're not going to do anything that displeases him, are you? So you will be able to live as you please because you will never do anything that displeases him. His desires will be yours. His will will be yours. You will seek to love him first. You, you, it just, that's what Jesus did, right? Within that first part of the statement lies the righteous restraint, love for God. The freedom is in the second part. That's grace. And you know what? Grace is risky business, isn't it? Nevertheless, it's the business of God. We're free to behold and become like Christ. And I already alluded to that this morning earlier in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As we live under the guidance of the Spirit and respond to his moral and spiritual direction, we will not only experience true freedom, but we will exhibit true faith because we will be transformed from glory to glory into the same image of that which we behold. And who is that? Jesus. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And that brings glory to God, which is the primary goal of our lives. And it's the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the way. In John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus said, the Spirit will, will take of mine and he will bring glory to me. It's the, it's the sole purpose of the Holy Spirit to bring glory to Jesus. Well, one of his purposes, not the sole purpose, but that's, that's a primary priority for him. So, the choice is ours. Freedom in the Spirit or death by the law. Which will you choose? Life in the Spirit means flying closer to the Spirit's flame. And it gets hot the closer you get to it. But here's the last deal. His fire still burns. So fan that flame. Fan that flame. In the Old Testament, the cloud of smoke and pillar of fire provided guidance and protection for all the people of God. And I'm convinced that that was a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. I am. Why? Because of verses like Haggai chapter 2, verse 5, and Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 19 to 20, if you're taking notes, it actually says something about that. In the New Testament, he came with the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the resemblance of tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. Now, while we may not visibly see him that way, he is still in our midst, isn't he? He's still restraining evil in the world. He is still our guarantee that God's presence goes with us. He is still our protection. He's still our provider. He's still our petitioner, our paraclete, one who comes alongside of us, and our personal and permanent power for living. He's still all of those things. Hey, we need him. We need him and the words of Jim Elliott ought to prayerfully flow from our lips every single day. This is what he said, quote, God makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of thy spirit that I may be a flame. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. What a prayer. So don't fear, his faithfulness endures. Don't be foolish, his frustration, it still builds. Don't forget, his freedom still rings. Be fervent, his fire still burns. And one last thing, I'll leave you with it. His offer still holds, so take it seriously. In John chapter 7, Verse 37, on the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John gives this commentary. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And at the end of the Bible, last chapter, one of the last verses, we read these words, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the water of life 
without cost. What an incredible gift we have of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Freely offered, freely received. How will you respond to it? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there's so much in your word about the Holy Spirit. We often tend to neglect it. We throw his name around quite frequently. We do understand something of him, but there's so much more to learn. And he changes us daily from the inside out as long as we walk with him. I pray that if there's anyone in this place, Lord God, or listening to these words that does not know what I'm talking about, has no idea about the Holy Spirit, that they would realize that the only way to get the Holy Spirit is to come to Christ, to receive him as Lord and Savior. And Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit to us and put him in us, that he might be with us forever. And for those of us that do know the Holy Spirit and maybe we haven't been walking too closely with him, I pray, Lord God, that we would just not drown out the sound of that beep, that we perk our ears, whether he's screaming in our ears or whispering in our ears. Let us be so in tune with the Spirit that we can hear his still, small voice. And may you be glorified in all of the things that we do and say. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.